welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. back. Uh, my name is Alex, if we haven't met yet, and I get to serve here at the church. And um, I am not Luke. Luke was actually scheduled. He was on, on deck to preach tonight, but unfortunately, uh, he and Megs are uh, kind of coming down with all the sickness that's going around. So if you guys can be praying for them, that would be awesome. Um, I know a lot of people are getting hit with it, but because of that, I'm now, I'm now the one who's going to preach, and um, what that means is that we are actually going to be jumping around in the book of John. So if you were with us two weeks ago, um, we ended right in the middle of John chapter 3, and we're going to be jumping now to John chapter 4, and the reason for that being I was on deck to preach next week in John chapter 4, and so... Luke and I, for obvious reasons, we just decided to switch around. And um, in the back, can you guys take a little bit of heat off of me? I feel loud right now. And if I yell at all, I might burst some eardrums. I don't want to do that. But uh, there we go. That's better. Thank you. Um, as I was saying, it's good to be back. Last week, obviously, we got to take um, time to kind of split off with the guys and the girls. And I love that we get to do that as a ministry. I think it's really important that we're spending time um, getting to kind of pour into gender-specific issues and topics. And because of that, though, we haven't been together all that much over the last two weeks. You know, Thanksgiving and then the split, all these things. And a lot has happened in my life. Some of you may have heard this, but I am losing my roommate. (laughs) And I'm upset about this. Uh, (laughs) So Ben and um, Abby Erickson got engaged. Yes, and I'm bummed because I was going to give him so much grief tonight in front of you all, but he actually, uh, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently he is also sick, so he is at home, um, but, you know, I wanted to say this to him specifically, but um, I really respect Ben, and I think it's important to recognize that from time to time. As a, as a brother in Christ, I'm so thankful for him. Um, that I get to live with him, that I get to be a friend to him, and that I get to serve alongside of him in this ministry. And so uh, it's just been a, it's been really a blessing from God. And so I am brokenhearted. Like, you can pray for me. I was there. I remember, you know, I was at their engagement party, and my sister texted me. Uh, it was so random. She, we don't really text all that much, but she said, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm at my roommate's engagement party. And she just texts back, bummer. I <laughs> She's like, you're celebrating the thing that replaces you. And I was like, I know. So definitely pray for me. Selfishly, please pray for me. (laughs) All right, let's get to the sermon. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 4. As I said before, Luke is going to finish up John chapter 3. So if you were dying to to hear that text, don't freak out. Just come back next week and and Luke will bring the word for you. But tonight we're going to be in John chapter 4, and the title of my sermon is Gathering the Harvest. And, uh, oh, as a side note, you can also pray for me. Here's a second reason you pray for me. I have 45 verses to get through tonight, and um, we are going to be looking at a very large portion of Scripture. 
And the reason I mention that is because there's a lot of theological directions you can go with this passage. There's so many roads you can take. But as I was studying, what grabbed my attention was the theme of evangelism. In the heart of this chapter, Jesus uses harvesting imagery to teach his disciples about the need for evangelism. And according to Christ, our world is like a wheat field. Uh, And if we were to lift our eyes, we would see that it's ripe for harvest. You see that in verse 35. Now, I'm not a farmer, so I cannot speak to um, harvesting, but I did grow up in Kansas. And if there is anything that Kansas has in abundance, it is wheat. In fact, if we were, you know, like playing Settlers of Catan, it would be like putting a six or an eight on wheat in Kansas. Like, the stuff is everywhere. And so I see it all the time. And what you need to know for the purpose of this sermon about wheat is that there's a special time of year for the grass. And I don't know about everywhere else, but in Kansas, it comes right around early June. And what happens is that the wheat finally starts to mature, and the top of it turns white when this happens. And if you're lucky enough um, to find yourself driving down the interstate in Kansas in the middle of the evening, or right as it's kind of dusk, what happens is the sunlight starts to hit the grass. And because it's white, it catches the light, and it almost looks like a wave of fire rolling in the hills. It's absolutely beautiful. And there are a few things better to see Kansas fields when the sun's hitting them just right. In fact, I would, I would say that um, before moving to Kansas, I was always um, more inclined towards mountains. But now I, I kind of prefer the wheat. You know, and at first I thought that was silly. But then, you know, you're out there driving, you see it, and it looks like there's dancing fire. And you realize you've drifted like halfway into the other lane. And you're like, oh, you come back and somebody honks at you. So there are a few things better than that. And it doesn't just serve to look nice. More than that, it's a sign that those fields are now ripe, ripe for the harvest. And that's why I mention it. Because the truth is, we don't all have to bus over to Kansas to find a field that's ripe for harvest, do we? In John chapter 4, Jesus equates gathering the harvest with the work of evangelism. And he calls his disciples to step into that work by sharing the gospel with a broken and dying world that is desperate for the good news. And if you are a believer here tonight, then you have received the same calling. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave the Great Commission, where he told his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. And those were Christ's last words on the earth. The very last thing he had to say, and they weren't given just for the people who were there with him in that moment, but they were given for all believers of all time until Christ returns. So all of us are called to evangelism. And my question for you tonight is, are you answering that call? Do you actively share Jesus with the people around you? Think of your friends, your coworkers, your families, whoever it may be. Are you public with your faith? Or is it something that is private in your life? Each of us have to answer that question. And the problem I see is that most of us, your pastor included, are better at making excuses than we are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I think of the Apostle Peter. You know, he was the chief of the 12 disciples. He was a pillar of the church and someone who knew Christ intimately. 
Like he walked with Jesus his entire life. And he was the one who proclaimed Christ as the Messiah. He said, Jesus, I would be willing to die for you. And you know what happened to him the next day? He denied Jesus three times because of his fear. Openly to non-believers, he said, Christ, I never knew him. And that was Peter the Apostle. So, if he struggled with this, if he struggled with sharing Christ, shouldn't we expect the same? Our hearts are sinful, and they excel at finding excuses to make sure that we don't have to share Jesus with the world. And that's hard, but I think each of us know that it's true. We can all attest to it. And what can happen is that as we give in to those excuses, um, whatever those might be for you, we start to become desensitized to God's calling on our lives. When that calling is the very thing that God intends to use to bring us joy and then to send life into the world. So we need to get back to work. I mean, there's such a need for evangelism and the fields in Rockford are ripe for harvest. So my hope is not to crush you in this sermon. I'm not here because I want to just guilt trip us all to be, you know, more open about our faith. But rather, I want to display Christ as our example so that we're both equipped and excited to step into the work of gathering the harvest. And to that end, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4. As I said before, it's a big, big passage. So I'm going to break it down into three sections, one for each of my points. So three sections, three points, and we're going to read through them one at a time. So let's start with verses 1 through 26. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and we drank from it, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give to him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water again. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. To which Jesus said, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour.
How about now? Maybe a little more? There we go. Okay, that's a lot of lot of text. But in it, what you have is probably one of my favorite stories in Scripture where Jesus comes to this woman and he brings her new life. And my first point coming with this passage is follow the leader. Working with kids, um, follow the leader is a game I'm quite familiar with. You know, the whole goal of it is to copy whoever the leader is. And so long as you do this, you win. And so the kids love this. They're like programmed to try and copy other things in their lives. So it works out super well because they're happy. And then as a leader, you get a break mentally. And so we love this game. And I would take it. The reason I mention it is because I would take that same principle and apply it to our evangelism. As Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, we are to be imitators of Christ. And in this portion of scripture, Jesus offers a perfect model for evangelism that each of us should be imitating in our own lives. I mean, I could spend a whole night just talking about this text. I won't. (laughs) But I do want to highlight three key aspects of Christ in his evangelism that we can follow. And the first one is this. He is selfless in his evangelism. Jesus is selfless in his evangelism. In the first six verses of this passage, what you find is that after growing in popularity, Jesus decided to leave Judea. He knew it wasn't his time to get into conflict with the Pharisees, and so he decided to go up to Galilee. And what you need to know about Israel at this time is it was separated into three different regions. Judea was actually the southernmost, so it was at the bottom of the nation. And Galilee was at the top. It was the northernmost. And smack dab in between the two of them was a place called Samaria. And so to go to his destination, Jesus would have had to go through Samaria. And the journey would have taken him roughly three days by foot. So it's a long journey. And right around halfway through it, Jesus stops at the well of Jacob to sit down and rest. Now, why do I mention this context? Because I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes just for a moment. Imagine that you had been walking for almost a day and a half. And then add to that fact that it says it's about the sixth hour, which would have been noon. So it's hot outside. You've been walking for a day and a half. You're probably all sweaty. Your mouth's a little dry. You finally get to sit down, and now you see somebody walk up to the well. It's not exactly the most ideal circumstances for evangelism, is it? I mean, this would be the equivalent of if all of us were going to go evangelize downtown, but right before it, we all, you know, got together and said, hey, we're going to run a marathon, and then we'll go tell people about Jesus. I mean, that would be like the worst idea ever. Most of us wouldn't make it. You know, like we'd get left behind. The few runners here would be the only ones downtown. But the whole idea is when you're tired and, and you're weary, it's not exactly the best condition to be telling people about your faith. And in this passage, it says that Jesus was wearied. He was broken down from his journey, but it didn't stop him from sharing the good news. In that moment, he wasn't thinking of himself. He was intentionally focused on this woman and looking for her good. That is what it means to be selfless. And Paul, the apostle, speaks to this in Philippians 2.3 when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And here, Jesus does exactly that. He's in a place where he is tired, where he's been on a journey. You have to remember, Jesus, even though he is God, is human. 
He has taken on a human nature. He gets tired just like we do. And there he is, and he easily could have let this woman come and go, but he decides to put her needs in front of his own. He counts them as more significant than his comfort, and he decides to step towards her. And if we're going to be effective in our evangelism, then the same has to be true of us. Friends, being tired is not a good enough excuse to avoid sharing Jesus. I mean, what happens when it's the end of the night, you've been working all day, and all you can think about is going home to get to your nice, comfy bed, and then an opportunity presents itself to share the gospel. Do you just say goodbye to that person and let them go? No! You sit down and you start telling them about Jesus until they don't want to hear you talk anymore. That's what I'm trying to get across here is that evangelism is selfless. And I think we can all share moments where we fail to live this out. But not Jesus. Selfless evangelism doesn't have an off switch. It's always on. Always on the lookout for opportunities, regardless of how you feel. And I think we need to cultivate that in our lives the same way that Christ did. So, first aspect. Evangelism is selfless. Here's the second. Evangelism is countercultural. You know, when the woman came up from, uh, to the well and Jesus asked her for water, in doing so, he actually broke several key social barriers of the time. Um, if you look at verse 9, it hints at this. It says that Samaritans didn't deal with Jews and vice versa. And the reason for this is that during the exile, the Samaritans were part of the northern tribe of Israel. And when they were taken over by the Assyrians, they were wiped out. And the few remaining survivors decided to intermarry with the foreign nations. And as they did this, they integrated pagan religions into their belief system. And so when the southern tribe, which would have been the Jews, came back from exile, and they saw that their northern brothers had intermingled and given up their faith, essentially, they were disgusted with them. In fact, one commentary I read said that the Jews viewed Samaritans as racial half-breeds with a tainted religion. It was intense. And how that played out practically is that if a Jew was to interact with a Samaritan in certain conditions, they would then be considered ceremonially unclean. And what that would mean is that they were unable to worship in the temple until they were purified. So being around a Samaritan could threaten your ability to be in the presence of God if you were a Jew. That's why they all avoided each other. And when you consider that and add to it the fact that the Samaritan was a woman living a promiscuous lifestyle, Christ's decision to interact with her seems to be somewhat radical for the time. The reason why they even met was because this woman was too ashamed to go out with the other girls in town to draw water in the morning when it was cool. In her life, she had jumped from one man to the next, and guess what? Everybody knew it. So even her own people were ashamed. She wasn't just an outcast from the Jews. She was an outcast from the Samaritans too. But that didn't stop Jesus from going to her. You know, Christ went against the culture. And while everyone else avoided this woman because they were afraid her ugly might rub off on them, Jesus, as the spotless Lamb of God, whose purity could not be tainted, decided to go right for her. I love this. Jesus wouldn't have to be purified after this encounter. Rather, he would go and purify this woman through his own blood on the cross. His evangelism was countercultural because he offered it to the last person 
imaginable. And when you come back to the text, you see that that's not the only reason why it was countercultural. It went beyond just who he was talking to, but what he was saying. In Ephesians 4.15, Paul calls believers to speak the truth in love. And after taking the drink from this Samaritan woman, that's exactly what Jesus did. We don't have time to dive into all of it, but he told the woman about a living water that only he could offer her. And at first she doesn't seem to understand all of what's going on, but she's open to it. That's why in verse 15 she says, you know, sir, give me this water. I would love to have some of it. But rather than answer the request, Jesus speaks truth into her life and he shines a light on her sin. He takes a spotlight and he just puts it on everything wrong she's ever done. You see it in verse 16. He says to her, go, call your husband and come here. And when you read that like first time, you're like, okay, well that seems like a jump in the conversation. There seems to be something missing. But there isn't. Jesus is God. And as God, he knew this woman's background. And so he asked her to bring her husband, knowing that she couldn't fulfill the request. And by that, he then went on to expose and uncover her sins, saying, you are right in saying, I have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband, is he? He goes right for her sin. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't demean her when he does it. He doesn't tear her down. He doesn't shame her. But at the same time, he doesn't shy away from the hard truth that needed to be spoken. And that is countercultural in our day. Because the unforgivable sin of today, more than anything else, is looking at someone and telling them that their lifestyle is wrong. If you do that today, it's unforgivable. I mean, you'll get canceled immediately. But guess what, friends? That is exactly what God has called you to do. Why? Because sin has to be exposed before the gospel can be applied. That's why Jesus is so uncompromising in the truth with this woman. She needed to hear it if she was going to be saved. And the people around us need the exact same. So far as we share it in love. And let me stress this briefly. Too many people have been driven away from a loving God by unloving servants. And the way that we speak truth into people's lives is so important. And I think Jesus gives a good model of this. It is speaking truth in love. And for us here, we all lean to one or the other. Either we're very strong in truth and kind of weak in love, or we're so strong in love, but we never know how to speak the truth. And I would say this, Christ is the example. He does it perfectly. When you look at this passage, he is not overbearing with the truth. He does not come to this woman and crush her. And yet, at the same time, he isn't so lost in her, his feelings or trying to comfort her or coddle her that he doesn't get to the issue. He does both perfectly. He speaks the truth in love. It's a very delicate balance, but we need both. And I would just say this. If you're able to do it, it will be countercultural. The beliefs in this book, in the Bible, are only going to become more polarizing. And if we are going to give the people in our lives the good news of Christ, then we have to find courage and be willing to make them a little bit uncomfortable. We have to be willing to run against the current like our Savior was. So... Second aspect, countercultural. Third one, in his evangelism, Jesus doesn't share a religion. He shares a person. In 
the text, after exposing the, this woman's sin, Jesus has a conversation about where wo- worship should take place. You see this um, through verses like 21, 24. And I wish I had time to dive into this. This passage in itself deserves an entire sermon. Um, but for the sake of time, we're not going to go into it. And if you want to, um, Pastor John actually just preached on this recently a couple, couple months ago. I'd recommend that message to you. It's a great sermon. But for our purposes, it's important to note that in this conversation, there were messianic implications. As Jesus was telling this woman about where she needed to worship, what that was going to look like in the future, she started to realize that he was talking about a Messiah, someone who would come and redeem the people. And that's why she says to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And that when he comes, he will tell us all things. From from the conversation she had gathered that Jesus, after exposing her sin, was now starting to kind of nudge her this way towards the Messiah. And she was religious. She knew who the Messiah was. She knew what purpose he would serve. And so she acknowledges her need. She acknowledges the fact that she needed a Savior. And she was open to it as well. And as she kind of comes to this conclusion that, yes, you know, I am in need. I am, you know, a sinner. You might be right about this. Jesus doesn't just drop, you know, the doctrine of justification on her right there and then. He doesn't start to say, well, guess what? You have to do X, Y, Z, all these different things, and then guess what? Then you'll be saved. No, he says, guess what? I'm him. The thing that you need to find acceptance and love and salvation, all of these deeper needs that you have, they're going to be found in me. And I think that's worth noting because in this whole encounter, all Christ did was share himself. He shared the person that he was with her. And that is exactly what we're called to do. Evangelism in our lives doesn't look like offering a system or a dead religion. It looks like bringing people to a living person named Jesus. And ultimately, our effectiveness is going to come from how well we share that person. It won't come from knowing all the theological arguments or reasons. Instead, it will be sharing the person who transformed you with his word. And the way you do that in your lives, I think this is important to know. There's two ways that you can share Christ with people. The first one is by opening your mouth. I think that's half the battle sometimes is we're so afraid to just say something. But if you are able to communicate the fact that there is a person named Jesus that he lived on this earth, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that because he was God, it was sufficient for them, and that he was raised again, and now that your sin is covered, if you can communicate just those basic truths, that Jesus Christ died for me, because of that, I am saved, and now I am restored to God. If you can share that, then guess what? You can be effective in evangelism. You just have to open your mouth. That's the first way. The second way that we do this is through our lives. Um, One of the most amazing doctrines, I think, in Scripture is this idea of bearing the image of God. And it's something that each of us have. It's called the Imago Dei. It says that in the beginning when God created man and and, as male and female, that alone, that creature, man itself, was the only one that he gave his image. And it's this substance. It's not just maybe like a picture of himself, but it's more everything we are encapsulates a piece of God. It reflects him. And part of us bringing people to the person of Jesus is being the person of Jesus to them. Living out Christ in our lives in such a way that it reflects him to the people around us. And that is how we share the gospel. 
And so it's twofold. If we are going to be like Christ in the way that we evangelize, if we are going to lead people to salvation, then we are needing, we are going to need to share a person with our words and with our actions, with our very lives. That is the model. And while it might change slightly depending on your context, if you follow the leader, if you look to Jesus, you take his example, and you live it out in your own life, God is going to make you effective in gathering the harvest. All right. Everyone take a deep breath. That was my first point. We have two more to go. I'm going to go quicker on these ones, don't worry. But stay with me. They're good and they're worth hearing. Look back at verse 27. That's where we stopped. My next point, which comes from this section, is fill up your plate. If the first was follow the leader, then in this section, I think we are called to fill up our plates. So let's read together up until verse 38. It says, just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, and she went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has, wait, did, you, did you bring Jesus food? No. Did you bring Jesus food? No. Did Jesus grub hub? I don't know. He's got food. They don't get it. And so Jesus said to them, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So, fill up your plate. There's a strange experience I've had a couple times in my life. And there are certain moments of just absolute focus. They don't come very often, but from time to time they come up. And in these moments, I become so dedicated and so focused on the thing that is in front of me that I lose absolutely all sense of my need for food, sleep, or anything else in my life. Has anyone else experienced this? If you've ever been in college and finals week came, you probably know what I'm talking about. Maybe it was a project, maybe it was a paper you had to write or an exam, and then maybe even beyond college, maybe in the work, in the work field, you had a project or a deadline you had to make. And whatever it is, it's something that just absolutely consumes you to the point where you're no longer hungry. And it seems to me that Jesus had a similar disposition towards evangelism. Because the disciples here try to give him food, and his response is that he has food to eat they don't know about. And again, like they can't figure it out. They're asking him, what, what do you mean you have food? We've been walking for a day and a half. And Jesus goes on to say, my food is to do the will of my Father. And this is where my illustration really kind of breaks down. Because in my case, it's more that 
the, the, the thing that I'm so focused on is distracting me from my need for food. But in Jesus' case, the thing that is distracting him, the thing that is taking his attention, it actually satisfies his need for food. Sharing the gospel with the Samaritan woman took away his hunger and thirst because he found God's work so fulfilling. That is incredible when you start to think about it. I mean, in your life, when was the last time your natural desires became secondary to sharing the gospel with the people in your lives? You know, you were there and you're saying, oh man, it's lunchtime, I can't wait to eat. Oh, you know what? No, I'd rather go share the gospel. Or, you know, maybe, you know, it's one in the morning, I really should go to bed. No, you know what? Put the alarm clock away. I'm getting out and put my clothes on. I'm going to go share the gospel. Do we do that? I don't. That's not like my natural response towards doing God's work. And yet somehow Jesus, who is like us in his humanity, was still able to be fulfilled by doing God's work. He had the same needs we have. He, he had the same need for food and for sleep. But his primary concern was fulfilling his father's will. It was doing the Lord's work. That is what filled his plate. It wasn't these other things in life. And I would encourage you because that same thing, doing God's work, sharing the gospel with the people in your life, can be what fills yours. You know, I have um, conversations with kids in our ministry from time to time. And usually, um, the reason I bring this up is because they're upset. You know, sometimes kids get sad, and they don't want to be in the ministry because they want to go back and be with mom and dad. And so I will come to counsel them because I don't want them to be a distraction. And I'll say, you know, hey, what's, what's going on here, you know? They'll say, oh, you know, I want to be with mom, or I want to go home. And, and if they're a repeat offender, you want to know what my response is? Sorry, you're stuck here. <laughs> like names come to my mind almost immediately. I'm not going to share them. But what I, what I do tell them and how I, counsel, um, how I counsel them is I say, you know, you can't go. <laughs> You're stuck here. But you do have an option. You have a choice. And that choice is that you can choose to have a good time today. I said, you don't get to choose whether or not you get to see mom or dad, but you can choose whether or not you're going to enjoy the class today. You can choose to have fun and be here, or you can choose to not have fun and be here. Either way, you're going to be here, but depending on your choice, today could be awesome. Now, I'll be honest, <laughs> that method is effective maybe half the time. A lot of the times they come back to me and they're like, I'm not making the right choice. I'm sad. But the reason I bring this up is because we are offered a very similar choice when it comes to evangelism and when it comes to delighting in God's will. We can either share the gospel as we're called to, in a sense, with passion and joy and life, or we can let it be a burden on our lives. The saying goes that duty alone is drudgery, but duty with love is delight. And I don't know about you, but delight sounds a lot better than drudgery. <laughs> so, fill up your plate, believer. Some of you are here, and you don't feel satisfied with your life right now. Maybe you're not looking for that satisfaction in food, but you look to it into, through worldly pleasures all the same, different comforts. And I would suggest to you 
that delighting in the Father's work is a better option. I mean, why do you think it is that some of the best events we do in the 20s ministry are the ones where we're serving other people? It's because accomplishing God's work is what satisfies our hearts. It's what we were made to do. And when we fill up the plate, when we come to our lives and we say, you know what, yeah, I haven't been sharing God the way I want to. I haven't been evangelizing the way I want to. But you know what, I do want to be satisfied in life. I do want to be at a place where, like Christ, I can say, this is the thing that fills my heart. I think that God can do a work in that. But it actually starts with us having to be honest with the fact that a lot of the times we fill our plate up with other things. We don't really want to, to do this work, but I would encourage us to say, this is where God has life in store for you, is when you can set aside those other things and say, yes, Lord, I'm going to give you all of me, and I'm going to boldly proclaim you to the people around me. So make the choice to delight in evangelism and watch as God is faithful to satisfy your heart. It is a promise that he will not fail. Okay, point number three. If the first was follow the leader, second, fill your plate. Last one is this, find your carry. I draw this point from verses 39 through 43, and I really do have to explain this one. And to do that, I want to tell you about a man named Dickie Simpkins. Has anyone heard this name before? Does anyone know about Simpkins? Okay, I wouldn't think so. But he's actually an NBA player from the 90s. And I want to list, uh, list out for you some of his stats, some of his career stats over his entire time in the NBA. How did Dickie Simpkins do? And here they are. Game started. Zero. Minutes played per game, 11 out of 48. Average points per game, 1.2. Three-pointers per game, zero. Games played per season, 21 out of 82. Those are not the best stats for a professional NBA player. If you've played basketball, you would know that would probably get you kicked off a team. But listen to this last stat that he has. NBA championships, three. Now, how did he pull that off? I mean, this guy is buns. He's not good. I looked him up, and he is absolutely horrible at basketball. Well, here's how he did it. Simpkins um, just so happened to play for the Chicago Bulls during the year of 97-98. And Simpkins found his carry and a man named Michael Jordan. And MJ took Simpkins, who sat on the bench the entire season, and won him three championships in a row. So when I say find your carry, what I'm talking about is someone who puts the team on their back. You know, we talk about this in sports all the time. You need to, you're getting carried. It means you're bad. If somebody says you're getting carried, it's not a nice thing. It means you're bad, and somebody else is covering the weight for you. But in this case... I think it applies to our evangelism, and it's how we should approach it. And I'll show you why I think that. Let's read starting in verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in Christ because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, 
And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I think it's rather apparent, but when you look at this text, Jesus is the one who puts the team on his back when it comes to evangelism. You know, the people start to believe in him because of the woman's testimony, but they aren't transformed until they actually meet Jesus. Do you notice that? The woman tells them they start to believe, but then they come back, and what do they say? Now we believe because we have seen him for ourselves. We have heard it from him. And the same is true for us today. How many people, think about this, how many people come to church because a friend invited them and they kind of got forced into it by the family only to be transformed by the gospel when they heard the preaching of God's word? Or maybe when they had a scripture shared with them. When it comes to gathering the harvest, our power is found in Jesus. And our main responsibility is to get people to him. That is going to be my main point here, is that we invite people to church and we share the scriptures with them because the way you encounter Christ is through his word. You know, obviously Jesus isn't around today so that we can walk up to him and say, you know, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Here he is. But in all honesty, we can say that because I can tell you all about Jesus and say, here he is. It's in the word. That's how you experience Christ, and there's so many different methods you can look into, you know, here's how you evangelize, you use this reasoning, this reasoning, and those are all effective, they might help you, but the thing that is going to bring people to a saving faith in Jesus is always going to be his word. Again, that's why we bring people to church, because they need to hear the preaching of the word, they need to hear Pastor John on a Sunday morning telling them, this is the son of God. That is going to be the most effective way you will ever find to bring people to salvation. And I think that's an encouragement. It is to my heart. Because what it means is that the weight of responsibility doesn't lie on us. Listen to this. From Romans 10, 17, it says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the carry. And praise God, because what it means for us is that we're not responsible, ultimately, for the salvation of somebody's soul. Gathering the harvest isn't all on you. God will make it happen through the power of his word. Your job is then only to step out in faith and bring them to that word. If you are wrestling, you're like, man, I don't know the methods. I don't know this. Start there. Just start saying, I'm just going to try and get them to Jesus. I'm going to say, come to Thursday. We have 20s. Or maybe on a Sunday morning. Yeah, hey, this might be weird, but I go to church. Would you want to come with me? If they're your age, they're definitely not doing anything on a Sunday morning. Tell them to come. That's where they're going to experience Christ. That's where they're going to hear the word. That's where their lives are going to be transformed. God is the power behind evangelism. He is the one who carries us. Our job is to recognize that and then step out in faith with the role that we have. And I think that simplifies it. There's so much more to it. You can take classes and those things. I'm not trying to disparage them. They're all good. But it starts here with a very simple understanding that God is going to save his people. He chose them from the beginning of time. And if he's already chosen them, then your job is not to try and go make converts, but to find converts. And to let the word do the work that it's supposed to. And so I'd encourage us to that. Find your carry. That is the joy that each of us have as believers. And God is here to guide us in it. That's why he sets the example. And even more than that, it's why after suffering on the cross for our sins and going to heaven, he sent us the Holy Spirit. 
I, I don't even have time to go into this, but it's the Spirit who strengthens us in our weakness. And if you are a believer and you have that Spirit, then guess what? God is going to use that to aid you in your evangelism. That is going to equip you. Almighty God is in you. Yes, you have a responsibility to know what you're talking about. Yes, you have a responsibility to present the gospel in a way that is true. But don't forget who's in you. It's Christ himself. It's the Spirit moving through you. That is an encouragement to our evangelism, that God himself is going to make us fruitful in the harvest. All we have to do is step out in faith. And man, could you just imagine with me what this place would look like if each of us did that? If just for a month or even two, each of us decided to set aside the fear, to set aside all the different things that might distract us in this life and say, you know what, God? I'm weak, I'm broken, I haven't done this the way I'm supposed to, but I'm going to just step out in faith. I think it'd be awesome. I think this place would be packed out. Can you imagine if we had to move into the main auditorium because we couldn't fit in here? And if every single time we showed up, there were people who didn't know Christ, hearing the word preached faithfully Thursday after Thursday. I mean, we would not be able to hold down the roof on this place. And I want that. Do you? I want to see God move here. And that's only going to happen if we step out in faith. That's not something to crush you if you haven't done it. It's an encouragement. It's saying, look, get on the bus. Come with us. Join in the work. Let's harvest. It's time to move forward. I want to close with this. Matthew 9, 37. Jesus was with his disciples, and here's what he had to say to them. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I want that prayer to be our prayer tonight. Even as we go to small group, even as we go outside of this place, that God himself is the Lord of the harvest. And when we start to dream, we start to think, what would it look like for this place to just explode? Why don't we go to the one who's in control of it and ask him? And if you're someone who's here and you have not stepped into that as a believer, you know, you know, I haven't been sharing the way I'm supposed to. Go to God and pray this prayer. Say, Lord, let me be one of them. Let me be a laborer. Let me go forward so that I would see the harvest and that it would be fruitful.